Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout out to Daniel Smith for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death dying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. I've been thinking about the concept of a shibboleth a lot lately, and... I'm not really sure why. Take the different words used across the U.S. to refer to a small machine that dispenses water meant for drinking. You have drinking fountain, sure. Water fountain, of course. And you also have bubbler. That's what we called it in the area of Wisconsin that I grew up in. If a new person, say, showed up at school and asked where the drinking fountain was, we knew they weren't from around there. And I still remember the look I got the first time I asked where the bubbler was when my family moved to Phoenix and I started in a new middle school. If you always referred to it as a water fountain, there's a good chance you'd have no idea what a bubbler even was. A shibboleth could be a phrase or a word or an action. It could be a way of speaking, or a specific pronunciation. It could be a way of participating in a tradition, or the tradition itself. A shibboleth could be anything, really. Anything that identifies you as either part of the in-group, or an outsider. This month, on Death, Dying, and Other Things, a story about an in-group and an individual. In Shibboleth, an individual finds others like him, but not exactly. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. hungry. So he bent down near the side of the creek, pressing his fingers together to form his long hands into blades of a sort. He plunged them into the wet soil. Then, after fanning his fingers, wiggled each of them as deep as he could. He took a deep breath. 
the next part always hurt. The forest around him was quiet, except for the constant sound of water. The bubbling creak in front of him, the popping of single droplets condensing on the trees and falling to the forest floor, the pattering of the never-ending drizzle on the nearly solid canopy of leaves overhead. Dark, too. That same canopy blocked out nearly all sunlight. He hadn't seen an animal for months, but remembered the last time he did vividly. So rare was the occurrence. He was some miles west. Not that west meant anything to him. Near his last camp, which was near a roiling pond, muddy and constantly churning. It was near night, so it was even darker than it was presently. But the brilliant white fur of that slinking beast caught his eye through the darkness. It appeared from behind a particularly large and gnarled tree, almost as if it had walked through a portal just behind it. Six feet long, at least, it dawdled around the far side of the pond, stooping low to paw at the muddy ground, sniffing the exposed dirt with its long, wriggling snout, searching for food. He watched it paw and sniff, paw and sniff the ground for a few minutes, finding several grubs and worms, lapping them up with its segmented tongue and yanking them into its yawning mouth to be swallowed whole. Energy was far too scarce in this place to waste it on chewing. Satisfied, or maybe bored, it took a few steps to the bank of the swirling pond and bowed down to drink the dirty water. Suddenly, one of its dozens of stalked eyes bent in just the right direction to spot him across the pond. It stopped drinking, lurched up onto its hind legs, and waved the other four around menacingly. It let out a bellow that echoed and echoed and echoed through the dark woods. His temperature rose, a burning panic erupted across his face, and he thought about running. Running was dangerous. His bones were brittle, and one wrong move could mean a broken limb. He decided he'd only run if the beast made a move to round the pond and confront him directly. It never got that far. The beast roared again, and before it had even stopped, something long and clawed burst from the surface of the gloomy pond and dug into the beast's leg. Its roar changed to a scream, and then it was tugged under the surface. He had packed up his camp that night and moved away from the pond to his current camp an hour's hike up the creek he currently knelt beside. He wiggled his fingers once more for good measure, basking in the spongy cold mud between his digits, and then steeled himself. Taking a sharp breath in, he tensed the muscles in his gut, chest, and shoulders, and then it happened. The tips of each finger split open. A long, slender, bone-tipped tendril rushed forth from each finger, eight in all, and whipped through the mud and dirt, looking for prey. When one found a worm or grub or other protein source, it impaled its victim on its thin bone spear, and then burst out of the ground to place it in his mouth, where he'd swallow it whole. 
He'd hunt this way until he'd either had his fill or went too long without finding more food. This time, he was fortunate to be able to fill his belly completely with wriggling vermin. Enough food to power his body for at least three more days. He relaxed the muscles in his gut, chest, and shoulders, and the tendrils retracted back into his arms. His fingers would take a day or so to heal. He leaned over to the creek, washed the dirt off of his hands, and then, with his segmented tongue, slathered a healthy amount of saliva onto each of his eight fingertips. He stood up at the bank of the creek and watched the water sputter by. He often thought about why he never came across any body of water that was just still. The creek in front of him, drifting along over rocks and down trees around bends and back. The pond he was camped at until recently, constantly churning. He remembered back several years when he stumbled out of this forest and onto the banks of a great lake, acres across, ten-foot waves rolling across it in every direction, crashing into each other, crashing into the shore. A spectacle he enjoyed watching, but couldn't for long, for even though the sky was covered in a thick blanket of rain clouds, the sunlight that did manage to filter through burned his pale and sensitive skin after only minutes. Even puddles, when they grew bigger than the size of his palm, would begin to vibrate rippling violently until they evaporated or were dispersed into other, bigger, already moving bodies of water. Perhaps, he thought, the ground underneath the water was moving somehow, pushing up and down in a way that mirrored the turbulence on the surface. Or perhaps every body of water was home to some huge beast, pushing and pulling the water around it as some sort of plaything. Or, and this is the explanation he was partial to, perhaps there was a great being, many-armed and single-willed, concerned with the state of standing water in the world. And that great being, whatever its name and for whatever purpose, stirred and pushed and mixed every drop of standing water. Who could hope to know such a thing, to know its reasons? This comforted him, to realize that there were some things he did not have to know. He was partial to simple camps, and as an extension, he had few belongings. He carried a small pack made out of the skin of a furry animal he had by chance killed and eaten. In the pack he had two wooden tools, one for digging and one for hitting, and a third tool made out of some material he'd never seen before. Cold, sharp on the side, pointed at the end, like the tendrils hidden in each of his fingers. He liked this one the most. It had been with him his entire life. He found it laying on his chest in his first moments of life. He awoke, cradled by the thick leaves of the forest's canopy, and took his first breath. In only seconds, he realized, or remembered, he still wasn't sure which, that he needed to get out of the trees and that he was hungry. He made quick use of that sharp implement in those first few moments, too, using it to climb out of the treetops to the forest floor, where he had to carve out a life for himself. It had been invaluable for creating those two wooden tools, 
invaluable for salvaging woven plant fibers from that strange camp he stumbled upon three weeks prior, and invaluable for constructing his only other belonging, a simple cot made of wood and those same salvaged woven plant fibers. This made all the difference in his quality of life. The ground was always so, so wet, and sleeping on that cot allowed him to stay somewhat dry through the night. Since he had made that cot, he always constructed each camp the same way. He'd search for a site close to a body of water, with two or three trees very near each other. He'd fill the gaps between those trees with thorny branches from the abundant bushes that littered the forest floor, and he'd assemble his cot against that makeshift barrier. That way, he'd only have to worry about threats coming from a single direction. When he returned to his camp, he froze. Something was wrong. He couldn't tell exactly what at first. He held his breath and listened, but the bubbling of the nearby creek, which he used to his advantage to mask the sounds he made, now worked against him. He forced his two eye plates apart, moving them down and around the sides of his head to give himself a wider field of vision, then separated the lobes of his head down to his mouth to give each eye greater control. It was at times like this that he wished summoning those hunting implements from his fingertips didn't require so much effort. They might make a good defense against the forest's roaming menaces. His right hand found his satchel and slipped inside, where his fingers grasped that sharp and pointed heirloom. The lobes of his head swiveled back and forth, pointing his eye plates and scanning the entire boundary of his camp. There was nothing. His cot was where he left it. The barricade of thorny branches was intact. There were no prints in the soft dirt besides his own. Then his left eye plate caught something, some movement, outside his camp toward the river. The lobes of his head slammed together, and his eye plates returned to the front of his head as he spun around to face the anomaly. Whatever it was slipped behind a tree. He tightened the grip on his cold and edged weapon and removed it from his bag. He stood silent for what felt like hours, watching that singular tree for any sign of the thing that hid behind it. He began to worry it was one of those rare, long-limbed horrors that climbed into the canopy of the forest so effortlessly and waited silently for passing prey, only to drop on the unsuspecting creature's head and consume it with humongous jaws. His muscles twitched, becoming anxious at the scene his mind was constructing of that monster crawling above, unseen, positioning itself right above his head. And then... He clicked his teeth together and forced air through the gaps, making a percussive hiss, and then he did it a second time. The entity rounded the tree trunk, revealing itself. He had never seen anything like it, but as soon as he laid eyes on it, his stomach felt as though he might vomit up his lunch. 
His extremities went cold, but something deep in his torso suddenly felt hot. He nearly lost his grip on that sharp and beloved birthright clasped in his hand. The thing's head was cleft down the center, two plates on each side of the cleft, carrying and protecting two large eyes. The cleft ended at the thing's mouth, which was long, wide, and slack, with many teeth. A thin, short neck fastened its head to broad but bony shoulders, which themselves sat upon a full torso that tilted backward slightly. Attached to each shoulder was a long, thin arm that terminated in eight delicate fingers. Two legs shot downward from the bottom of the thing's torso, angled forward to compensate for the tilt of its pelvis. At the end of both legs, four digits clawed into the mud, aided by thin webbing stretched between each. He looked down at his own feet and noted the similarity. It clicked its teeth and forced air through the gaps, making a percussive hiss. It extended its arms straight into the air, and eight pointed tendrils exploded from its fingers, crossing and wrapping around themselves until they had formed some sort of sign, a sort of signal. He found himself, almost against his will, placing his favorite tool back in its spot in his bag. He shot his arms straight in the air, and eight-pointed tendrils exploded from his fingers, crossing and wrapping around themselves until they had formed the same sign, the same signal. Hours later, he was following the other individual through the forest, up the creek, away from his camp. It was as if he could not help himself. At nightfall, they stopped to rest, and in the morning the other was hungry, and so they knelt at the bank of the creek, plunged their hands into the mud, and hunted for several minutes, throwing whatever they could find beneath the ground into their mouth. The two of them walked on for another day. Occasionally, he would become agitated, nervous, and the other would release some smell, musty and familiar, and he would calm down and release a smell of his own to reassure the other that he was not anxious anymore. Halfway through the third day of travel, his feet were in so much pain he thought he might not be able to go on. This was the furthest he had marched in one go in his entire life. The other released more scent, which calmed him and seemed to say that this would soon be over, and somehow he returned a scent that said he was grateful for that. Not long after, they arrived. He stopped in awe, and his traveling partner stopped next to him. It gave him chills to look at. A clearing in the forest, but unnatural. In the center of the clearing was a stack of logs, one on top of the other, reaching nearly three times taller than he himself was. The stack in front of him reached in each direction for a great distance before meeting two other stacks, which continued away from him. Past the tall mass of logs, he could see other masses of logs, similar, taller, and encompassing smaller areas. These had more logs on top of them, sealing them off from the outside world. In front of him, the logs separated, and another figure, similar to the other he had been traveling with, but with enough slight differences that he could tell the two individuals apart, moved out from within. 
Instinctively and without hesitation, he raised his arms above his head, and the tendrils exploded from his fingertips and wrapped around themselves and formed the sign he and his traveling partner had made several days earlier. The new individual returned the gesture, and his traveling partner released a scent that comforted him and assured him that he had done a good job. He followed his traveling partner to within the wood formation, and what he was faced with inside bewildered him. The new individual closed the logs tight behind the three of them and slid a giant mechanism across the moving device. In front of him were dozens of the structures he only had hints of from outside. Big and small and tall and short. Paths wound out in front of him, leading to these structures, but also between and around them. On these paths were many individuals, like his traveling partner and the new other he had just met, that looked like them but also unlike them, enough so that he could tell each apart. They meandered along the paths and also into and out of the smaller wooden constructions. Each had a small wooden tool that they held in one hand, extended above their head, and spread out, shielding them from the sun. The individual he had just met walked past him, to the smallest structure he could see, butted up against the outer logs, and sat. His astonishment must have given off some scent, because his traveling partner released a scent of his own, letting him know that everything was going to be okay, and then his traveling partner reached out and placed their hand on his shoulder. He had never felt like he did in that moment. His traveling partner led him through the large camp, past more and more individuals. Some carried packs similar to his own, some draped furs and plant materials over their bodies. All looked him in the eye plates and made him feel welcome. He was led into one of the smaller structures. Several other individuals were already here, each at a raised wooden platform, roughly waist-high, occupied by something or other. An unmistakable smell hit his nostrils, and he realized the one against the wall was smashing those precious protein sources he had to hunt so carefully against their raised platform into some sort of paste. Saliva dripped out of his slack mouth, which he wiped away as best he could. His traveling partner released a scent that told him, soon, and opened the logs near the back, revealing another enclosed space. This one had a similar flat raised area near the door, and another near the back which was covered in woven plant material. It reminded him of his makeshift cot. He realized he would never have to use that cot again. His traveling partner released a scent that simultaneously told him, This space is yours, and I will return, and closed the logs as they left. Alone, for the first time in several days, his heart began to ache, and he felt an urge to open the logs and see those individuals in the next room. He almost did, too, until something on the far wall near the big cot caught his eye. It seemed to be some sort of portal into another enclosed space similar to the one he currently occupied, but as he got closer, he noticed another individual, past the portal, similar in appearance to all the others but different enough that he could tell it was a new individual. His arms shot above his head, and so did the other individuals. 
His eight sharp tendrils exploded from his fingers and wrapped around themselves and across themselves and formed the signal he was now so familiar with, and so did the other individuals. Except the others was wrong. It was backwards. He retracted his tendrils and grabbed his favorite tool from his bag and brandished it at the other, and to his surprise, the other did the same. In that moment, he understood. It was him. He approached the portal and extended his hand and watched his doppelganger do the same until their fingers met. It wasn't a portal at all. It was a portion of the same material that his dear sharp friend, currently clutched in his hand, was made of, but somehow polished to an incredible gleam. For the first time in his life, he was able to see himself. He examined his face. He looked just like all the others in that huge camp. It was a miracle. As night approached, his traveling partner returned, and they ate and met so many others that it was impossible to remember them all. Deep down in his gut, he felt a warmness that he hoped would never go away. When night fell, he was led through the camp once more. They passed more log structures that were homes, that were workplaces. They passed one that was, through the use of some loud and glowing thing, was producing tools like the one he had found on his chest after his first awakening. They meandered around the paths and finally came to the entryway of the biggest log stack, right near the middle of camp. Bright blue light spilled out of the thing, through the entryway but also through the other openings cut into the logs. The light was beautiful, maybe the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. He tensed up, and for a second time his traveling partner put their hand on his shoulder, and he relaxed. He looked over at them. His traveling partner's slack jaw vibrated slightly, and then they removed their hand and headed inside the massive log construction. He hesitated, but only for a moment, and then followed them. The massive cavern stretched on in front of him, bathed in a gentle blue light, the source of which was in the center of that place. The origin of that light was too bright, far too bright to make out what was actually causing it. He and his traveling partner were not the only individuals here. There were many others, easily as many as he had seen in one place since he arrived. He looked around for his traveling partner, but he had lost them among the crowd. The warmness he felt in his body trickled away. He considered turning and leaving, and then he was seized from behind by two others. They restrained his arms and removed his pack, confiscating that dearest of possessions. He let out a scent that begged them to release him, but in return they bathed him in an odor that only brought to his mind darkness. He tried to struggle, but two of his fragile bones snapped immediately. The pain seared into his mind, and reflexively, he clicked his teeth together and forced air through the gaps to hiss up at his captors. They didn't even look down at him. They just dragged him through the crowd, toward the center, toward the origin of that beautiful light.
The floor in the center of the chamber was constructed around what reminded him of a massive translucent tree trunk without the branches. It grew up from the dirt, sharp edges sparkling, and at its top emanated that dazzling light. Being in this close proximity to it made him dizzy. Hanging down from an unseen place in the log structure were vines made of that same cold and hard material of his sharp-edged instrument. At the end of each vine was a closed circle, which his captors now opened and closed again around his hands and feet. His captors left him, held fast by those vines. Each went taut, and then he was raised up off the ground next to the light, strung up by his arms and legs. He swung back and forth for a long while, looking down on the crowd that gathered around him. A sound, unlike anything he had ever heard before, rattled that log structure around him. Low, rumbling and monotone, it ripped through the air. Then everything was silent. The crowd of individuals around him stopped moving. The noise dissipated. For an eternity he swung at the end of those vines. He released a scent that begged those below him not to hurt him, but no one responded. Then, from behind, he heard movement. Something large stepped into the chamber with them. A few of the individuals below him briefly released excited scents. They had been waiting a long time to see what they were now seeing. Each step of whatever was approaching rattled the large structure. The vines he hung from chimed with each rattle. He knew he could swivel his eyes around to see what was coming to prepare himself, but he thought better of it. Thought he was better off not seeing what horror was approaching. He wished he could, in that moment, will himself to die before whatever was coming reached him. It arrived at his side, then stopped. He turned his head away from it, whatever it was. Involuntarily, he released a scent that said, I'm scared, I'm terrified. In response, the hulking terror next to him released a scent to say, Don't be afraid, this is an honor. Then the behemoth released another scent, a strong scent, meant for the entire gathering of others. He took it in, but could not understand what it meant. He saw the gathered crowd spread out, completely encircling him, and then each fell to their knees and threw their bodies forward. He heard the telltale sound of fingertips splitting open and barbed tendrils bursting out. He saw countless tendrils snake along the ground, towards the center of the room, towards him. Each tendril, ate from each of the many individuals in that room, tangled and fought and stretched as they wormed up the crystalline tree trunk and then reached out just far enough to wrap around his ankle and pull him into the light. They wrapped around the light source and around his waist, around his legs, around his chest, securing him to the luminous mass. The light faltered quite quickly, obscured not only by those countless tendrils, but his body as well. He became warm, but not the gentle, 
inward to outward warm of his first arrival here. A different warm. An outward to inward sinister warm. The warm began to grow into a hot and then into a pain. He, for a moment, lost his focus and threw his head to the side, and he inadvertently came face to face with it, with that monstrous hulk standing nearby. He didn't understand. Its body was twisted. It had too many arms and too many legs, and depended on all of them to hold its massive body off the ground. Its torso was knotted and gnarled. He couldn't tell which part were shoulders and which part were hips. Arms and legs just seemed to be attached wherever they could find purchase. A head sat on top of the massive body. Not held up by a neck, but just positioned on top of the mass. The head itself was just as any other individual's head, except for its enlarged state. Cleft down the center, two plates sat on each side of the cleft, carrying and protecting two large eyes. The cleft ended at the thing's mouth, which was long, wide, and slack, with many teeth. But this, this head, was the most horrifying part of the beast not its many arms and legs and deformities. For the face that adorned this head was the same face he saw in that cold, polished portal earlier in his room. That face was his face. He and the beast locked eyes, and the beast shifted in close. The pain was growing unbearable. He felt as if he would soon burn alive, true, but the tendrils from those countless bystanders were also tightening by the second, squeezing the breath from him and breaking his fragile bones. He stared into the monstrosity's eyes, into his eyes, and released a scent begging for an explanation. The monster humored him and released another scent, and this one he fully understood. You are home. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The story, Shibboleth, was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Bubblers and to Knives. Death, Dying, and Other Things is part of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows they're great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dang, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs>